Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hey, so good morning, everybody. Good morning, Balam. Good morning, Battersea. Shout really loud so I can hear you. No, okay. And good morning, Westside. And those who are still in bed watching online as well, good morning to you as well. And this morning we're continuing our series uh, looking at the idea of idols and counterfeit gods. And this morning my wife and I are sharing together. And uh, let me say a word of prayer before we begin. Father God, we just thank you for what you're doing at work in our lives during this series. We invite you this morning just to have your way in our lives. As we unpack scripture this morning, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us afresh, to challenge us and to remind us again of who you are and who you're calling us to be. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now we live in London, but I don't know how many of you drive. Are some drivers in the room? Yeah, okay. When it comes to driving, there are two different types of drivers. There are certain drivers who always like to have the petrol tank full. So at any given opportunity, you pull in and you refill your tank. Then there are the other kind of drivers who like to see how far they can drive when the red light comes on. Anyone here kind of particularly kind of that kind of, yeah, okay, a few hands go up, okay. And uh, I used to love this game. I used to think it was absolutely brilliant. I was a red light driver seeing how far I could go on empty until I lost the game several times. And it's the most humiliating thing. You have to go and pay like nine pounds, go buy one of those little green plastic things. And then you have to queue up amongst cars. Like there's a car in front of you, a car behind you, like, hello, <laughs> just getting my petrol. <laughs> And you kind of fill up the car, it's embarrassing, and I've stopped playing that game. This morning, there could be some of us here who are running on full. Things are good, and you kind of leapt into church this morning like, yeah, things are good, good to go, yeah. But perhaps for others of us, we're actually running on empty. We're thinking, actually, life is tough right now. Things aren't easy right now. And our hope, I guess, this morning, as we explore this idea of counterfeit gods is that we discover a truth that God has in store for us. I imagine that Paul, as he arrives in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts, that he felt pretty empty. He arrives in Athens, this great big city, 40,000 people, this place where culture was formed, a significant place. And yet he's been persecuted and he's now in this place all alone, all by himself. And Acts 17 verse 16 says this, While Paul was waiting for them, his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Next slide down. The idea of being distressed is the idea of being provoked, of being angered, of being exasperated. That As he looked around, he saw the different idols and his heart was breaking because he knew that God's heart was breaking. Went to another talk this morning on counterfeit gods. And whether we're running on full or running on empty, may as God provoked Paul, may he provoke and challenge us this morning as well. 
This morning's theme is marriage, and the idea of marriage as an idol. And some of us here won't be married, some of us are married, some of us have been married, but I think some of the key lessons from what we're going to explore this morning impact and challenge each of us in the different seasons of life. Joe and I have been married now for 14.5 years. Exactly, I think. And, uh, the 14.5, the, the, the point five is very, very important. It is, it is. Yeah. Being heckled Sorry. by my wife is not what I imagined, really. I, can I just say, I'm not even on, I'm probably not even on a camera. I'm having so much fun realising that you can all see my facial expressions while he's talking. Um, so I'm in, going to enjoy that as he gets to do it, too. The, the poor guys now in Battersea and Westside are going to have to... Sorry, carry on. Okay, right. Back at the ranch. So we're looking at this idea of marriage. Well, actually, the idea that actually there are many good things in life that can become idols when they stop just being good things, they become the central thing that we are living for. And we look to these things to deliver everything in our lives for us. So this morning, we're looking at marriage. Okay, so... Morning, everyone. Morning, Battersea. Morning, Westside. Morning, online. Um, this is quite fun. We have not done this quite like this before. So either we'll do this again sometime or never again. So uh, let's not. Um, first up, a little public service announcement. Be wary of anyone who commends to you a biblical marriage. Let's just take a little look at some of my favorite biblical marriages. First of all, we have Abraham, who not once, but twice, when moving into a new area, and rather than risk being murdered, lets his neighbors know that his wife is actually just his sister, and they should crack on. Or how about the really messy love triangle between super king David, arrogant Nabal, and beautiful and intelligent Abigail? Nabal, threat Nabal sorry, threatens the lives of all of his inhabitants, all of his subjects, because he refuses to help the king. Abigail persuades David to show mercy and saves his life in the process. He, she points out that her husband's name means fool, and it is appropriate. Uh, she, <laughs> David relents. Nabal finds out, has a stroke, and widow Abigail becomes queen. Or what about King Xerxes of 300 fame? Uh, Esther is probably his most famous wife, but his previous wife was Vanshti. Uh, he got outrageously drunk after a marathon drinking binge, and then he demands that his wife displays her beauty in front of all his mates. She, surprisingly enough, refuses. He divorces her, banishes her, and then sends out an edict to be proclaimed throughout all of his vast realm so that all women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Safe to say, the Bible doesn't necessarily paint a perfect picture of marriage. It's more a no-holes-barred, searingly uh, honest picture. And then the Bible invites us into more. So, 
we are going to go on a little journey of marriage and explore one of the most toxic biblical marriages out there. And to do so, we needed to have a little play with today's title. So we were given the title of the idolatry of marriage. But because today we're looking at the marriage of Jacob and Leah and the marriage of Jacob and Rachel, we decided to slightly twist the title to the trophy wife, the horny husband, and the overlooked housewife. So let's get started. So we're going to kind of share some of the biblical story first and foremost. And um, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments in life where you are so full of emotion and that finally that emotion kind of overflows and you're, you, the tears bubble up and you can't contain it anymore. There's a story with Jacob when he does just that. He has fled his homeland. He had cheated his brother out of the birthright, and his brother is so mad with him, and his brother is bigger than him, that he basically runs for his life. Jacob says goodbye to his parents, knowing he may never see them again. And he's given this clear instruction, Genesis 29, verse 2, to go and find a wife from the daughters of his uncle Laban. There's a commission for him in that moment. And he travels this journey. It's 500 miles. It's a long way to be walking. 500 miles alone, a dangerous thing to do. No maps, no streetlights, definitely no Uber. And he's got a rock for a pillow. A desperate kind of journey. And on that journey, he has this incredible vision from God, this, this, this staircase going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And he has these promises that God speaks over his life, but he's got no one to talk them through. He is still all alone on this journey, searching for his uncle's family that he doesn't even know. So all these things are at play in his life when suddenly he ends up at a well. And there's some young shepherd boys there and some sheep and he says, do you know Laban? I wonder if it was the first group that he'd asked, who had asked many groups previously. But they say, yeah. And here comes his daughter, Rachel. Jacob sees Rachel. And he rolls the stone away from the top of the well. And he waters her sheep. And he kisses Rachel. And then the emotion becomes too much. He begins, it says, to weep out Allowed. All this stuff he's processing internally, leaving his family, his brother, what he's done, that journey he's been on, those promises from God, and suddenly there are tears of relief. Finally, he's found Laban's family, perhaps tears of joy. Rachel runs off in excitement to go and find her father, and Laban comes back and he says to him, You are my own flesh and blood. But in this kind of story, there's no mention of God. It's almost as if God is working backstage behind the scenes. At no point does Jacob appear to thank God or to worship God for bringing him safely to this place. But in this place, he ends up. And this is what happens next. So if you have a Bible with you, either in print or on a screen, feel free to turn. We're in Genesis 29. The words will appear on the screen. Um, we'll explain why in a second, but we're going to read Genesis 29 
14 and then to 30 verse 2, and then we're going to jump ahead to 14 and 16. But first up, the long section. Okay, Genesis 29 from verse 14. After Jacob had spent, uh, stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely. Uh, she was beautiful and had a lovely figure. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work with you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better I give you to her, uh, her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. I know. Then Jacob said to Laban, uh, give me my wife, my time is complete. I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Then Laban give, gave his servant Zil Zilpha to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his certain Belhar to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he has given me this one also. And so she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. And so he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I'll praise the Lord. And she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing any Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? So then things get really weird and complicated. So we're going to skip the next few verses. But basically what happens is, there's a kind of like, not a dance-off, but a baby-off, 
when basically the first, uh, Rachel, first of all, gives her servant to Jacob and says, well, hang on a sec, she can have some kids for you. So two more kids, Jacob's child, five and six. And the second son's name is Struggle because Rachel thinks, I have struggled against my sister and I've won. Then Leah thinks, hang on a sec, I've got a servant too. She gives Jacob her servant and boom, child seven and eight. <laughs> Why would we skip that section? Okay, now we're into a really obvious, easy to understand bit of uh, verses 14 to 16. During the wheat harvest, Reuben uh, went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took my, away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, said Rachel. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet her. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with your son's mandrakes. <laughs> so he slept with her that night. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> it's so much fun. Okay, uh, safe to say, a bit of a mess, right? So how on earth are we going to break this down? Well, we're going to start with Rachel, uh, the trophy wife. Rachel is a woman who has everything. She is your Hollywood cheerleader. She is the mean girl. She is Bridgerton's diamond of the season. Where Leah has no sparkle in her eye, it is Rachel who is a lovely in form. Her dad had to trick Jacob into marrying her sister, and yet Jacob worked 14 years to earn her. She was beautiful. She was desired. She was perfect. But she wasn't happy. It wasn't enough. She wasn't satisfied. Life, in fact, was not perfect. And despite everything, she was jealous of her sister because her sister had the one thing God had not yet granted her. She didn't yet have children. The age-old saying of comparison is the thief of joy. And my goodness, did that thief wreak havoc in Rachel's life. What do you do with dissatisfaction? The if-only-then part of life. If only I had a better home, then I would be happy. If only I had a husband, a wife, then I would be happy. If only I had a better paid job, better hairstyle, whatever it is. If only I lose the five pounds, gave the five pounds, get fitter, whatever it is in life, the if only, then statements hint to deep dissatisfaction. These statements have been mentioned over and over again over the last few weeks. They have been a running theme here as we have explored the counterfeit gods. It's because it bubbles up with every idol. The when, if, then statements. If you aren't content, 
it will lead to heartbreak. Because when you give your heart to an idol, the only thing that idol can do is break your heart. Marriage for Rachel became a counterfeit god because she looked at it to give her the perfect life. And every time it failed her, she became dissatisfied. So I get to speak about the horny husband. Thank you for that, Joe. That's nice. Uh, Pleasure. I just want to say it could have been a horny wife as well, but anyway, let's not go there. Um, can you imagine waking up the morning after your wedding day and finding the sister of the woman you thought you'd married lying next to you? How awkward would that have been? And I kind of think, when you're reading the story, how did that happen? I mean, first of all, is this a great advert for teetotal weddings? Perhaps it is, but... Um, Obviously, they have the veil over their face, but we're not quite sure what went on here. And it's kind of easy to feel sorry for Jacob. I mean, poor Jacob. The words still ringing in his ears from his father those seven years earlier, that he should marry one of Laban's daughters. That sense of expectation and pressure upon his life. And he's a long way from home. He's worked for seven years, well beyond what he'd normally work to kind of earn someone's hand in marriage. And he's been duped. He's now married to a woman that he doesn't love. But we need to take a step back. Because Jacob isn't just the, the pity of this story. He is a man driven by his desires. And he's a deceiver. The name Jacob means deceiver. And he's taken that blessing that was due his brother all those years earlier because he wanted it. He broke the rules of his culture, taking what should have been his brother's, because he put his desires first. That morning, he wakes up, and Jacob discovers just what it's like to be deceived. He's confronted by the reality of his own selfishness. Jacob, the deceiver, is now Jacob, the deceived. He's worked for seven years to earn the hand in marriage of Rachel, but Laban has given the older daughter instead. Chapter 29, verse 26 says this. Laban says, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Almost having a dig at him, saying, This is what you did to your brother in your place, but here, this is not how things work. Jacob, he knew what he'd done previously to his brother, that he is a younger, taken the older one's right, and yet here again he's trying to do exactly the same thing. He's breaking the same rules again because he's put his desires first. He would have known that in a Bedouin culture it was wrong to marry the younger sister before the older sister was married, and yet he has no concern as long as he gets what he wants to get. Can I just say in verse 21, if you ever are asking a parent for permission to marriage, this line, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to make love to her, is probably not a good line to use. Just look kind of aside there if you're ever thinking about that. But a big part of Jacob's desire is sex. And in our sexualized society, it can become the thing that we're always thinking about and told to live for, that we almost believe this lie at times. If we're not having sex, we're not living a full life. Sex can drive our thinking and our decision-making and our behavior. John Mark Comer, in his book, 
uh, writes about the idea of, of desires. And actually, sometimes the strongest desires aren't actually our deepest desires. I wonder, in this story, Jacob, he desires to sleep with Rachel and almost becomes transfixed upon this desire. And it overrules all other thinking. And the effect of this is catastrophic. Marriage can become a counterfeit God when you look to it for all your desires to be satisfied. Jacob, the deceiver, gets deceived. And then Jacob, the user, ends up getting used. This whole kind of little verse in Genesis 30, verse 15, where Jacob, a night with him, is swapped for some mandrakes, which sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? I heard people giggling, like, mandrakes? But actually, mandrakes were a plant that was used, they thought, in fertility. So kind of pick up the kind of under lying ideas there. But Jacob, who saw people as sexual objects, becomes himself seen as a sexual object. Marriage can become a counterfeit God when you look to it for all your desires to be satisfied. The deceiver gets deceived. The user gets used. Jacob is humbled. And so to Leah the overlooked housewife. All of the members in this marriage, in some form or another, are victims. But I'm with God on this one. I feel most sorry for Leah. She came to this marriage without a say, wanting finally to be loved and to be cherished, to be seen for who she is, to have one person want her, to have one person be committed to her above anybody else. Her life had been a perpetual comparison, and she had always come second, despite the fact that she should be first, because she is the elder. Everyone would have known that her dad had to trick Jacob to marry her. Everyone would have known that Jacob didn't work one hour for her. And she thought marriage was going to fix it. She thought that she could draw a line, have a fresh start, be a mother, be a wife, be loved. She looked to Jacob to notice her. And you see it in the naming of her children, with Reuben named See Me, Simeon, Hear Me, Levi, Join With Me. Each time, nothing changes. Her life is exactly the same. Jacob cannot mend her broken heart. All he can do is keep on breaking it. Marriage can be a counterfeit God when you look to it to put everything right in your life. But something does change. Unlike some of the other characters, she does something different. At the birth of her fourth son, she looks for her, her happiness somewhere other than with Jacob. She names her son Judah, declaring, I will praise the Lord. It is in her declaration that worship will be her primary response 
that starts her healing. When she focuses on the true God in her life, not the counterfeit, everything changes. God starts to restore in her what is broken. Later, she names her son Asher, meaning happy. When it comes to Leah, she has to look beyond Jacob and her marriage in order to start to restore and heal her marriage from within. She has to look to the true God, not to an idol. So marriage can become a counterfeit God when you look to it for the perfect life, when you look to it for all your desires to be satisfied, when you look to it to put everything right. Some of us are not married, some of us are married, some of us have been married. Some of us today are running on full and some of us are running on empty, but the challenge is this. Marriages aren't perfect. They do not meet all our desires. They do not put everything right. If you're looking to live your best life, if you're looking to have your deepest desires met, if you're looking to have things restored, we need to ultimately look to Jesus. This is a twisted, disturbing, awkward story. And yet the 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's this horny husband and this overlooked housewife who have a child called Judah. And from the light of Judah, after many generations and generations and generations, comes Jesus. He not only understands the longing of our hearts, but unlike counterfeit gods, he alone can fulfill the deepest of them. Like Leah, we need to break some cycles and choose to worship God. When Andy and I got married, Andy's mum preached the sermon. And I am going to absolutely butcher the illustration that she did because it was brilliant and I'm not going to do it anywhere near the justice. Um, also, she prepped these uh, props for us and she did whole wedding suits and a bridal thing and I haven't even remembered half my props. Worship team, could I borrow two water bottles from you? That one, yes, perfect, yes, yes, yes. See? Community, supporting each other. Right, it's going to be awkward with one hand. Okay, so um, imagine this one was the groom and this one was the bride the height difference is appropriate. Um, so she was talking about the idea that in a relationship, um, sometimes it's tempting to lean on another person. In fact, we talk about it quite a lot, don't we? We want somebody to lean on, somebody to help us, somebody to support us when times are tough. But look what happens when you lean on somebody. Actually... Look at the distance between the two bottles and look how unstable it is. Actually, when you lean on somebody, it makes it harder to be close. It makes it harder to be intimate. It makes it harder to rely on somebody. And imagine if you are both leaning. Hold it up so that the microphone can be next to my hand. If you both lean, it's even less stable and there is even more distance between the two of you. 
But if you stand, if you stand firm on the person of Jesus, the rock of ages, who is solid and stable, and the one who can be relied upon, look how close you can be. Look how near you can come. Look at what is possible. So the invitation, whether it's in marriage or in any form of relationship, is try not to lean on somebody who isn't strong enough and isn't able enough to hold you upright. But stand. Stand on the one who invites you to come near, who invites to be healed, who invites to restore, who invites to bind up your broken heart, to see you for who you are, to satisfy your deepest desires, to not give you a perfect life, but to give you life in all its fullness. The invitation is to come and stand on Jesus. Get rid of the counterfeit gods in your life and instead turn your attention and your focus on the one who is true. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We are going to pray. Battersea, Westside, same to you. Band's going to come up. I'm going to pray, say amen, hand back, and we're going to spend some time worshipping, fixing our eyes, and maybe praying a bit. All right. Father God, you know how we have walked into this space today. You know if we are filled up with the joy of the Lord or you know if we have come in spluttering and spitting because we are running on empty. You know our heart's desires. You know the places of dissatisfaction. You know where we have been drawing our attention and giving our hearts to things other than you. Father God, you know it has always been this way. For thousands of years, people have had messy relationships, done stupid things, and treated each other poorly. And yet you gave your son out of a messy line, out of a messy marriage, after a messy family, came Jesus. You do not leave us in the mess, but you are, invite us to be changed and transformed. So Jesus, draw us near to you today. Help us stand on you. Lord, where we have been leaning, set us right Draw us into your presence. Restore our hearts. Let us praise you afresh, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.